This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the Gem State. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. Oh, is for the outcomes, that's the story we can tell. ECHO all together, well, you know what that spells. Echo, Today's episode features a presentation by Larissa Janishek, neonatal nurse practitioner at the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at St. Luke's Health System in Boise on the topic of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. This lecture was recorded on April 28, 2021 as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. Here to introduce the series panelists and today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Good afternoon. Hello, all. You've made it to Echo Perinatal Substance Use Disorder. Very pleased to have Larissa Janishek, our neonatal nurse practitioner, giving the talk today about neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, formerly NAS. And Larissa, if you will introduce yourself and then you will just have the floor. Uh, Hi, I'm Larissa Janishek, nurse practitioner in the NICU at St. Luke's Children's Hospital. Thank you all for coming today. And today we are going to talk about neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, previously known as NAS. The objectives today are to examine the rate of NAUs, review the indications for neonatal toxicology screening, describe the clinical characteristics of NAUs, review assessment tools that are used right now, discuss the clinical management of patients with NAUs and recognize the importance of parental education support and involvement. So neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome was first identified uh, and reported in 1875. And like everything in medicine, it has evolved. It was first termed congenital morphinism for a long time after that. uh, That's what it was considered and not much really came of it. And then in the late 60s, early 1970s, Loretta Finnegan did a significant amount of research and work on really renaming it neonatal abstinence syndrome and developing her scoring and treatment tool that we'll talk about a little bit later. Dr. Loretta Finnegan is a neonatologist credited with the development of the Finnegan Neonatal Assessment Tool, also known as the FNAST, which first became available in 1975 and is still used widely in the U.S. and abroad. You can read more about her in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage. And then uh, for the next couple of decades, really neonatal abstinence syndrome kind of became a catch-all term for all substances that mothers had used during pregnancy. And so it kind of became a little more confusing. And the last couple of decades, especially with the uh, opioid epidemic and all the things that we know have occurred uh, in the last 20 to 30 years now, We really needed a better term to tease out specifically opioid withdrawal syndrome in these babies. So more recently, we've termed it neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. We needed something very specific, and it's still evolving. 
It is the most common cause of neonatal withdrawal. Polysubstance use is extremely common, especially nicotine, alcohol, THC, benzodiazepines, SSRIs, methamphetamine, and cocaine. If there's one thing to take away from this talk, it is that this is an expected syndrome. This is something just like in adults, when you think about adults and you have chronic use of opioids and you take them away, we would expect them to have symptoms of withdrawal. You would also expect that if they were suffering, you would use medication to treat them. So the biggest message here is this is something we expect to happen. This is something that we need to communicate to the medical community and to our patients that this is going to happen. To what extent, we can't tell, but it is something that we know is going to happen. 50 to 90% of the exposed newborns will require medical management for the symptoms. There are so many variables. It's very difficult to track, to research, because of the variables, the type of exposure, length of exposure, uh, polysubstances, the metabolism of both the mother and the fetus, the placenta function, genetics, epigenetics. Symptoms do usually present in the first 24 hours to seven days. Many times that's dependent on the half-life of the substance being used by mom. And these symptoms can last up to six months. The long-term, again, very difficult to measure because of all of the variables we just talked about, but there are associated deficits in hearing, vision, motor skills, developmental, behavioral, and cognitive. I know that kind of sounds scary, but if you actually look at the associated deficits with nicotine, they are actually much more significant than opioids, not to mention alcohol, which we know is a teratogenic and uh, other substances. Teratogenic means that the substance can disturb the development of an embryo or fetus, raising the risk of or causing birth defects. There are three substances that exacerbate the symptoms of NAUs, and that is nicotine, benzodiazepines, and SSRIs. So NAUs is actually uh, defined as a constellation of signs and symptoms of withdrawal in newborns resulting from the passive placental transfer of opioids used during pregnancy. It affects three different systems, the central nervous system irritability, gastrointestinal dysfunction, and autonomic nervous system activation. And we'll talk about this a little more in depth in a minute. From 2000 to 2004, the rate uh, for NOWS was 1.5 infants per thousand births. That uh, was a five-fold increase to 2014, up to eight infants per thousand births. So approximately every 15 minutes in this country, that's an average overall for the country, every 15 minutes a baby is born suffering from uh, opioid withdrawal. So the most recent numbers show that the rate of rise since 2014 has significantly decreased, which is great, but it's still pretty high for an average of about seven to eight cases per thousand hospital births. In 2016, hospital costs escalated over $572 million, and 80% of those patients are covered by Medicaid. 
This is the most recent data from 2017 that shows by state, but we have to remember that every state reports and records and tracks differently, whether it's by NAS or if the patient actually received a medication. So it's all, it's a little skewed. Again, there's a lot of variables, so it's very difficult to track, but there are different regions that are more impacted than others. The the East and the Southeast are, are much more impacted than the rest of the country, with Tennessee being the highest at about 30 infants per thousand births and Hawaii being the lowest at 0.7 infants per thousand births. Unfortunately, Idaho does not track any of that information. If we extrapolate, which I did um, for um, the surrounding states, Idaho is anywhere from about seven to 13 infants per thousand births. A large study from Vanderbilt that examined 4.6 million births in eight states. And they took these records from 2003 to 2014. And they found overwhelming evidence that policies that punish pregnant women for substance use was directly linked to more newborn experiencing drug withdrawal. So we know and We're trying to move in the direction of being less punitive, but the outcomes, it's just overwhelming that the outcomes are much worse for both mother and baby and the community when policies are more punitive. So some of the associated complications with NOWS include prematurity, intrauterine growth restriction, microcephaly, that's a small head, uh, and thereby small brain development, respiratory difficulties, increased jaundice, neurobehavioral abnormalities. There's an increased rate of readmission, especially the shorter the length of stay. Uh, More recent studies have shown in that first month of life, specifically regarding NOWS. And then there's an increased rate of readmission for all NOWS patient to the ED in the first six months of life. There's an increase in neonatal mortality, significant increase in SIDS, and of course, the complication of uh, symptomatic NOWS. There are associated birth defects, including atrial and ventricular septal defects, hypoplastic left heart syndromes, spina bifida, gastroschisis. And interesting, there's some studies being done right now um, looking at the increase in gastroschisis overall, and then particularly in this patient population over the last 10 years or so. So more to come with that research. So neonatal drug screening is controversial, to say the least. Um, The AAP really recommends that screening should be done, but they don't specify who and when, which patients need to be tested and how. They just really are more specific with saying each institution needs to have a guideline and follow that guideline so that there is no bias. So many institutions, including St. Luke's Neonatology, have adopted most consistently these uh, criteria for testing. So under our guidelines, we do test all neonates that have had a history, mom's history of unexplained, unexpected abruption, poor prenatal care, which is defined as less than three visits, social work recommendation, emergency department care plan, independent physician care plan. If mom's obviously intoxicated, 
a history of said the last two years, unexplained infant neurological complications, IVH is intraventricular hemorrhage, which we would not expect in a, in a baby born greater than 32 weeks, and any seizure activity, and then of course, uh, symptoms of NOWS. The uh, samples that we can use for neonatal drug screening, there's four of them. Urine drug toxicology, meconium sampling, the umbilical cord analysis, and then the last one, hair analysis, we don't do. Um, it's very expensive. It depends on babies having hair, the coarseness of the hair, the color of the hair. It's a send out that takes a long time, and it, it's really not cost effective and, and difficult to get. The other three we obtain on every baby. And the reason we obtain all three, I'll explain. The urine drug toxicology, that is only going to get what mom has consumed in the last last two to maybe three days. It is difficult to get. If the baby voids at delivery, then we may have to wait 16, maybe 20 hours before they void again. Um, you have to have a certain volume. We put a little bag on the baby. It leaks. If they poop, then it gets contaminated. So it can be difficult to get. Meconium sampling for those who may not be familiar with this term, meconium is the early stool passed by a newborn soon after birth, before the baby starts to feed and digest milk or formula. Meconium is starting to be made in the fetus at the second and third trimester, so it picks up substances ingested by mom during that period of time. Again, sometimes difficult to obtain the sample if they have meconium in utero or at delivery. You have to have a certain volume. Sometimes in the preterm baby, it can take days for that to pass, and you may not even have enough of the sample size. You can't mix transitional stool with the meconium that can create a false negative sample. This is a, uh, a send out also takes four to seven days. So it can be a little complicated as well. So that's why we also include the umbilical cord analysis. This is great. We don't have to take anything from the baby. It's readily available, but it doesn't get things, uh, substances early in the pregnancy. It just identifies the last 20 weeks and can sometimes be some false negatives. Again, there's lots of variables about amniotic fluid and perfusion and all those other kinds of things. So that's why we do the trifecta there and get all three on our babies. So the baby with NOWS, again, like I said, it affects three systems. First, the central nervous system irritability. This is a baby who is inconsolable. These babies are in pain and suffering. If I didn't say it earlier, I will say and can't say enough that historically and even the most recent literature says that neonatal pain and suffering is undertreated across the board. Pain and suffering that we would never tolerate in an older child or an adult we would treat with medication does not get treated in the neonate. So that's a, a big focus of mine is making sure that we're not under-treating these babies. So these babies are inconsolable. They can't stop moving. They don't sleep. They have tremors. They're hypertonic and can have seizure activity. When it comes to gastrointestinal dysfunction, they have feeding difficulties. They act frantic, especially with anything next to their mouth. They act like they're ready to eat, to root, but then they can't uh, elicit a good latch. And when they do, they just gulp and gulp and gulp. They're typically, if they can get a latch, they are hyperphagic, they overeat, and then many times they immediately vomit their entire feeding. 
So we'll go over treatment a little later. Usually frequent small feedings are, are the way to go. They also have a lot of GI upset, loose and watery stools. You can see them doubling over. You can tell that they're very uncomfortable. So it's really important here to be preventative with their skin breakdown on their bottoms. The autonomic nervous system activation, neonates, in case you didn't know, they don't sweat. That is just not normal. It's not something they do. And if they're sweating, it is really bad. Even if they're hyperthermic, neonates just don't sweat. So that is a significant stress response. These babies can also have a fever. Frequent yawning and sneezing. A lot of people don't, don't know also that repetitive sneezes. So sneezes where they're like, um, you know, you have three and four sneezes right in a row. That again is a huge stress response in the neonate and we need to really decrease the stimulation. They can also have increased respiratory rate. So this is comfortable tachypnea. They're not working to breathe. Their rate is a little higher. They, they may be doing some nasal flaring, but again, with no other signs of increased work of breathing and then some nasal stuffiness. We want to make sure we do rule out some differential diagnoses. They can be hypoglycemic, hypocalcemic, septic. Uh, so we want to rule all those things out. And of course, confirming a maternal hepatitis C and HIV status. So like I said, um, Loretta Finnegan did a lot of research and created her own assessment tool, and it is still the most widely used. There are some other assessment tools, but this is the most uh, widely used tool. It is a little cumbersome. It's time consuming. It takes a lot of education. It has to be used frequently. So there are some some cons to it, but it's pretty darn accurate and it's been used a lot. It has a score sheet list of symptoms. Each symptom is assigned a score. The scoring is dynamic. She did design it for term babies, so we do need to modify it for the preterm neonate. So some hints with using the Finnegan scoring system, it's really used to trend, right? So the first score is obtained two hours after birth, and then every three to four hours, if you get a score that's eight is kind of the cutoff. So if you get a score greater than eight, you're going to want to score again two hours afterwards. Gets a little confusing, especially for newer people, that you always score after the feeding. Again, it's dynamic, everything that you're seeing, um, but never poke a bear, never wake a quietly sleeping infant. Um, Pharmacotherapy is considered for scores consistently greater than eight. We use what's called a rule of 24. So we need to change our treatment if we have three consecutive scores, eight or greater, two scores of 12 or greater. We wean medication then for most scores less than eight over a 24-hour period of time. And if pharmacotherapy is not needed, we score at least recommended first three to five days of life. And I actually, I was rereading the AAP recommendations that were just published, newer ones, October of last year. And I saw on there that they recommended actually four to seven days. So eat, sleep, console. Let's talk about this. So Dr. Matthew Grossman from Yale back in 2014 developed an assessment tool called Eat, Sleep, Console. And I know a lot of people have heard about this. I I just want to go over a couple of things. Again, with everything we do, there's pros and cons. And I wanted to make sure that people knew a little bit more about what this study was about. Um, So eat was 
if they breastfed well or took a minimum of 30 mils by formula or, or express best milk, sleep was sleep calmly, quietly for greater than an hour. And console is being able to console within a 10 minute period of time. I want to make sure people knew that there was 50 participants, mothers and infants. All of these mothers had prenatal counseling and education, and they all had single care rooms where there was pretty much zero separation. And all of the staff had extensive education on this tool. Again, it's subjective, like a lot of the stuff we do, but I don't know of any other significant clinical practice that we would change based on one study of 50 participants. So it concerns me that we jump to just saying that that this is great because he got great results, decreasing the length of stay from 23 days to six days. That concerns me that if that's all we're going by length of stay um, and not other outcomes, is this enough to say that we should change our practice completely? I think the the concepts are sound. I think this is great direction and goals, especially the zero separation and maximizing non-pharmacological interventions. Um, but I do, I am concerned that it doesn't have any guidance about when or how to advance treatment, when to start medication, wean medication. None of that is in any of these guidelines. And then we don't have any other outcomes from this, any data. So the only thing that we do have is in the last couple of years, some uh, research has been done about decreased length of stay is associated with increased hospital readmission related to NAS, especially within the first month of life. So honestly, in our practice, we do the Finnegan scoring, and then we say, are they eat, sleeping, and consoling? We're kind of incorporating a lot of the concepts, but not really utilizing the guidelines. So non-pharmacological treatment, again, I love that about the eat, sleep, and console. I think that was really the most important two components of that is uh, maximizing zero separation and non-farm treatment. And that includes um, kangaroo care, which is also called skin to skin, um, a good firm swaddling, holding these babies upright. They like movement, but not rhythmic for some reason, that's a little bit different. Not holding these babies in the normal feeding position. They don't really like that. Definitely utilizing a pacifier, decreasing stimulation. I don't think we emphasize enough that lighting voices and smells can be very overstimulating. We all know that there is a scent in everything, right? Lotions, shampoos, colognes, uh, detergents, and we don't really think about those things, but they can be very overstimulating for the neonate and we need to minimize those things. Encouraging breastfeeding uh, anytime, all the time. Uh, it's only contraindicated with HIV, hep C, and poly illegal substance use. Using the formula, if we do use formula, Similac Total Comfort, frequent small feedings, like I mentioned before. And then these babies have a, a significantly higher metabolic rate. So they're at high rate for being dehydrated and uh, poor growth. So they do need many times higher caloric feeds and sometimes IV fluids. 
If we do have to uh, give the babies medications for their symptoms, our first line of treatment is morphine. They do need to be monitored uh, in the neonatal ICU. But what that looks like, again, is is changing, which I think is wonderful. There are many more single patient room facilities now. We can't do that downtown. It's just not the right setup. But we are uh, really trying to maximize the use of our facility in Meridian and NAMP where we do have those capabilities. So many times we will move our families out to those facilities. Methadone is definitely not recommended. Adjunct treatments, if we've maximized our morphine dose, then we would add clonidine if it's opioids only and fembarbital if we have polysubstances. We always wean our morphine off and then, and then the adjunct. So AAP also recommended that every facility have a guideline for advance for assessment, treatment, and weaning. So about four years ago, St. Luke's Neonatology developed two algorithms. A link to these algorithms and guidelines are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage. The education with parents, support, and involvement. Uh, there's two things that we hear over in almost every single family I hear from. And the two things are, no one ever told me this was going to happen. And I feel judged. So I think those are some things we, we really need to focus on as a community is really, again, making sure that these families, it's communicated that this is expected. And this is, if this is what's best for mom's care, then this is what's best for mom and baby's care. Uh, we want to be open, honest, and supportive, promote involvement in all clinical decisions. When these families come to us, we're printing out the tool. They should be doing the assessment with us. I'm printing out the algorithm algorithms. They're going through the algorithms with us. They should be doing all infant cares. Again, promoting zero separation. And I mean, most of the time, skin to skin, unless mama's sleeping, promoting that skin to skin as much as possible. Um, It improves outcomes. It's a shorter length of stay because it decreases the symptoms in the neonate. We have much less maternal relapse, less other people involved. uh, And it definitely takes a multidisciplinary care team to help promote and support these families. Again, encourage and empower educating these parents. I love watching the families when they first come in and how they are and how they evolve in the NICU and they become, they become so much more confident in how they feel um, about caring for their baby and who they are and making decisions. And it's, it's, it's very rewarding. After an Echo Sessions didactic presentation like we just heard from Larissa, we opened the floor to all attendees that Zoomed in to participate in that day's Echo Idaho session. We'll now hear some highlights from that conversation, including three of the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series panelists, Allison Smith, Jerry Woodworth, and Stacy Seib. Allison, what insight would you share in your experience? I, I'm just glad for the opportunity to say that I think Clarissa did a wonderful job, and thank you so much. This is Dr. Allison Smith speaking here. Dr. Smith is a family medicine physician, addiction medicine specialist, and director of mental health at Delta Airlines. Um, I think I I tend to remind people just around um, buprenorphine because hopefully we're seeing more and more of those um, exposures in pregnancy versus heroin and other substances. And just to remember that sometimes that 
opioid withdrawal syndrome, um, and then neonate will show up a little later with, um, with suboxone exposure um, in utero. And so to hang onto those kiddos a little longer, they may look peachy in the first couple of days. Feeding is often kind of the tell. They have a, they often struggle with, with feeding, um, as Larissa was talking about, but just to expect that it may take a couple of days before a potentially more severe syndrome shows up. Um, so don't be tempted to send them home at 48 hours. Hold on to them another day or two. Thank you. Jerry, how does this conversation, in your experience, how does this go over the best or what are common questions or pitfalls that you wrestle with? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. This is Jerry Woodworth, OB nurse at St. Luke's Maternal Fetal Medicine. This is a conversation we have at pretty much every visit with our moms um, from the get-go, from the first consult where we um, see a mom who's either currently using heroin and, and trying to get onto some kind of medication-assisted therapy or someone who comes to us already on methadone or something like that. Um, it's a conversation we have from the get-go. Every visit, we talk about it. Um, do you have any questions? This is often one that the patient will get because, you know, I see them face-to-face multiple times throughout the pregnancy. Um, but it's the grandma or the friend or the sister who's like, oh my gosh, your baby's sick. I can't believe this. And so we really try to get moms and families to, to tell their family members that the baby was probably is gonna have to stay in the hospital because of some medication and taking. Um, baby's not super sick. That's one thing that I, I like to tell patients is, you know, your baby's not critically ill. This is not, you know, um, like Larissa said, this is something we expect may possibly happen. The NIC is the best place to monitor these babies. Um, we do a good job keeping track of these kids. Um, she talked about Loretta Finnegan, Dr. Sive and I were able to see her actually at a conference a couple years ago. And one of the things she said was, you know, these days babies don't die from this. We do a really good job at monitoring and taking care of these babies. And um, it, it, it's, it's expected and we can take care of it. And like Larissa said, if the mom needs the medication, she needs the medication and let's, let's work on it together. And it usually goes over pretty well. I mean, like she said, that's, that's one of the questions. First questions I get is, you know, what's going to happen to my baby um, when patients come to see us and, and talking through it? Education helps. It, it smooths everything over in the end. Stacy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to keep going it over and over and, and help prepare families. Speaking here is Dr. Stacy Seib, maternal fetal medicine physician at St. Luke's Health System in Boise. They are under the impression that they should not have any sort of maternal medication, you know, and I think the data pretty much indicates that there's more chance of relapse if you're not on, you know, medical management uh, for your substance use disorder. So it's, it's, it's a really tough line to walk, I think, with families. The only other thing I, I, I didn't have time to address, but I kind of feel like it's so important, um, is this, there's still so much stigma. This group is a great group, and this is a great platform for squashing all of that. Um, but there's still so much stigma out there and so much misunderstanding with all of this that I think just focusing on educating our colleagues uh, about it, because we say to not be judgmental and I know the nurses try really hard, but it's what they don't say. Um, I can walk into a room and the nurses are lovely with these families, but the spine is a little more stiff. 
The voice is an octave higher. How they say their sentences is a little faster. The nonverbals say so much more than what they're actually saying. And, and the families feel that. They can sense that when there is still a, a misunderstanding, a, a judgmental feeling. You, you, you know it when, when you're talking to somebody um, and their words say one thing and their body language is completely different. And so I think we, we, we do need to, to teach more of that. That again was Larissa Janishek, neonatal nurse practitioner at the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, presenting Neonatal Opioid Withdrawal Syndrome. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk, are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Well, the contributing voices on today's episode were those of Larissa Janishek, Allison Smith, Stacy Seib, Jerry Woodworth, and Lachelle Smith. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. You know what that spells. Echo Idaho. Sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo Idaho. You can earn CE credit while you're sitting.